Take a network break. Select a virtual donut from our virtual dozen and join us as we pick apart the week's tech news. We've got a new offering from Extreme, more training opportunities from Cisco, networking for AI workloads, a tranche of follow-up, and more. And we're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks have hosted an exclusive online event so you can see how next-gen SD-WAN and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event to see the replay. Uh, or see the show notes for the link city network break episode 432 and stay tuned after the news for a tech bytes podcast with a uh, sponsor fortinet where we pull back the covers on sassy or secure access services edge we're going to talk with fortinet about the elements of its sassy offering and what a typical customer engagement with sassy looks like all right before we dive into the news we've got uh, a few fu's or follow-ups to get through uh first you may recall we talked about uh, cisco's vipella sd-wan snafu with certificates certificates expiring uh one listener wrote in to say that their experience just wasn't really a big deal for them. Yeah, he wrote in to say the SD-WAN certificate problem was a big nothing burger. All the data plane traffic remained online and network services were not impacted. I upgraded the D-Cloud controllers and then the V-Edge routers across the enterprise without incident over a couple of hours one e evening. The offline still-in-box V-Edge systems were a little bit more tedious in that I had to run them up, reset the clock to something prior to the 5th of the 9th of 2023, and then, sorry, the 9th of the 5th, so the 9th of May, um, and once rejoin the controllers, update the clock to present, and then deliver the upgrade. So just a couple of quick things here. Uh, the technical part first is only devices that were upgraded or restarted during the period that the expired certificate was expired. So if you just happen to have a rolling set of upgrades after midnight on the night that the certificate expired, then you dropped off the network, right? And... Uh, they were actually lost because they could, when they rebooted, they were not able to form the data plane connections over the tunnels. Right. And so some networks were lucky, but some weren't, right? Right. So um, if you just happened to be doing an upgrade on that night and you got caught out, and as I said on the show, there's a lot of big networks that would have had a rolling series of upgrades or, you know, um, I heard stories of like banks with 30% of their branches down and this type of stuff. And also relying on not upgrading your gear is, is not a great solution either. So, Well, I mean, you know, at this point you're saying I'm lucky. Right. And relying on luck is not what you're generally paid to do. Like, you know, right. um, uh, and the second thing here is that resetting the clock to overcome expired certificates is a massive security problem because effectively you've just bypassed the whole point of, of certificate uh, authentication, right? Yes. And so that should simply not be possible. You should be presenting not only the certificate, but uh, that validating it against the time. So that is both a massive security vulnerability because somebody could just take a box out, wind back the clock, and then connect to your network, and now you've got an unauthorized network. Not exactly zero trust, which is what we're all about these days. So I just wanted to point out those two issues. So uh, but then the person goes on to say, look, you know, our admin who maintains a legacy DM VPN solution snarked that this is why he likes his DM VPN solution. <laughs> but he goes on to point out he recently took three to four weeks to troubleshoot, identify and fix one remote site performance problem. And I returned that among the reasons I like the SD-WAN solution was that in a short period of time, one evening, I upgraded all the controllers and VEDGE systems without incident and minimal operational impact. Look, DVN, DM VPN is a horror. Um, it took uh, I think Cisco took roughly eight years, somewhere between five and eight years to get that stabilized. And I would not be surprised, to, you know, that if you've uh, tortured yourself into continuing VMVPN in 2023, you might be in the middle of a Stockholm syndrome and feeling like you're, 
Uh, honestly, as somebody who did try do a couple of DMVPN networks, I would not a period, uh, not an experience I wish to recreate. I think my main point about raising this is the, that Cisco charges a significant premium for its quality and an even larger premium for the software maintenance of its products. And yet here, even for the most basic of operational functions, certificate val validation, it did not do a very good job here. And that's what I'm really pointing out is there's no way that you can say that Cisco is um, doing an excellent job of spending your the money that you give it to do maintenance. It was able to develop a workaround within, say, 24 to 48 hours. Not a very good workaround, but a workaround nonetheless. And the impact to its customers was substantial, and they were just flat offline. And there are a large number of companies who are still people are truck rolling to get out to sites to reboot them and do the manual bypass. Um, and, you know, if you don't have an out-of-band network to get you out of trouble here, you've got a lot of sites to visit and companies are not happy. So, yes, that's your network. I think you are lucky and you aren't supposed to be lucky. You're supposed to get it right because it's right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, well, Cisco's the one that's supposed to get it right uh, and not rely on customers being lucky. So, Yes. And you didn't pay Cisco to be lucky if it worked. <laughs> right. Yes. It's not a gambling organization. <laughs> Arguably, <laughs> based technically, based on the evidence, it's not maybe. a casino, but <laughs> yeah, technically, no. Mm. Uh, we've also been having some ongoing discussions with listeners about uh, Lumen slash CenturyLink, um, uh, about uh, customer dissatisfaction. We did hear uh, from another uh, former Lumen slash CenturyLink user. They are dissatisfied. Uh, they mentioned that uh, when CenturyLink rebranded to Lumen, the sales team began to work them hard to buy into their SD-WAN and other technical services offering. Um, they wanted to be their true technology partner, and this listener says they are glad they did not bite on this offer. The team uh, they thought was terrible had an account manager who was adversarial and combative. Uh, their back-end accounting was a challenge. They moved to a different contract vehicle, and it took six to eight months to transition about 12 sites to the new contract. Uh, so Can you imagine that? Six to 12, like six to eight months of elapsed time to fix an account accounting challenge mm -hmm. for just 12 sites. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to tell me it takes six to eight months to migrate 3000 sites, fine. I'm, uh, I'm okay with that. Sure. But 12 sites, that's two a month, <laughs> right? And that's just an, a, an accounting transition. That's not even a physical transition. And you probably, I, I would hate to think how many hours were spent arguing with Lumen because I know this sort of what this is like. I've, I've had the same problem with uh, telcos in Europe, in Southeast Asia, and it's probably pretty horrible. Um, but he's pretty damning in, in, in his whole context. Uh, so I would have to say that Lumen CenturyLink slash level three or whatever they're called, just stay away from the move if possibly you can. And if not, just expect them to be a disaster on, on legs. Well, the one positive he does say is that they offer bandwidth at a decent price and are pretty good at maintaining that. They should stick with that. So I guess, uh, you know, if you need the bandwidth, sure, but maybe not other, hmm. other services. You know, this is, I've said a lot of times on this show is that telcos should just supply bandwidth. That's all they're good at. They can't do anything else. Uh, because in here is context. He actually says their field engineering team is untrained or does not grasp fundamental handling of system components. For example, when replacing a line card in an on-prem DMX, he slammed the replacement into the backplane, crushing the backplane pin package, resulting in a significant catastrophic service disruption when they, and then went on to wrestle to find replacement parts. In other words, he just got the card, slammed it in, and then sh broke the entire <laughs> broke back. The machine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And apparently then it became an absolute mess to try and fix it because they were just unable to get spares and get people out. They're just not able to handle that. So um, 
I, and there's more, right? There's another, there's another part. I've been onto Reddit and looked for more. And there's just so many more stories like this. I would just have to say that, you know, if you, and you spend any time in the industry, you, you may, and if you're in America, you're going to have a problem uh, because they have a monopoly on various towns and states. There's only one supplier. And in theory, they're meant to be a regulated supplier, but in a lot of cases, it just means you put up with whatever you get. So yeah. be aware that you need to be very careful to your home. Lumen, I would suggest. Yeah. Mm. All right. Uh, one more FU, a quick update on support for the Quick Protocol. A listener wants to let us know that uh, HA Proxy beat Nginx to the market with Quick support. Yeah, this one was a bit sort of, at, at first, I thought this was a bit na 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 um, <laughs> That's what I thought as well. <laughs> yeah, but he says in the, in the on-prem space, Har Proxy beat its primary command competitor nginx which is of course now f5 um in releasing quick nginx is still in preview with quick now quick has been around for three or four years now if nginx is still just getting to quick like even apache and you know all the other web web servers out there are doing quick uh at least in a preliminary like in stable published implementations there's a lot of enhanced features that they may not yet be supporting but if f5 is still in that then i think f5's got some serious um, issues going along underneath it. All right, that wraps up the FU, uh, the follow-up. As always, if you have comments, corrections, clarifications, you want to reach out to us, just go to packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, we love to get your feedback. And as you hear, we'll feature it uh, in the podcast. All right, let's get on to and the anonymously news. anonymously so. Anonymously, yes. Three, <laughs> importantly, you don't have to leave your name and number for to tell us that we suck or they suck. So <laughs> you could say both. It's fine. You can say <laughs> We can take it. Yes. <laughs> but yes, we will. Uh, if you want to be anonymous, that's absolutely fine. We, you know, that's we, we don't need to say who you are. All right, let's dive into some news. Uh, the startup DriveNets, which provides virtualized networking for clouds, has announced Network Cloud AI. This is designed to support the networking for cloud-based AI workloads. So DriveNets targeting hyperscalers that are running these massive GPU clusters for AI workloads, and you want to minimize latency and GPU idle time as data gets moved around these clusters. So sometimes Ethernet isn't the best approach, but hyperscalers may also not want to rely solely on InfiniBand because they're specialized hardware and specialized talent. So DriveNets is letting you use Ethernet NICs and broadband white boxes and a Essentially, what they're doing is breaking the Ethernet frames into cells that can then be evenly distributed across fabric ports in a leaf-spine architecture, so you get highly precise scheduling to ship data box-to-box. Uh, DriveNets is taking advantage of an open compute project called Distributed Disaggregated Chassis to make this happen. You know, this is weird, Drew, because I spent a couple of days last week thinking, at no way that InfiniBand can survive. Surely not. And I went off and read a bunch of articles about InfiniBand and I dug into the NVIDIA's AI solution, which is heavily, heavily into InfiniBand. And I, but what I realized was ultimately an InfiniBand only sort of scales to a hundred or a couple of hundred or maybe a few hundred nodes at most. I don't think the lack of um, experience with InfiniBand is a big deal because InfiniBand is a bit like Fiber Channel. It's mostly plug and play. You don't need to futz with it. It's not like an Ethernet network, which needs constant operation and administration. Mm-hmm. It was actually designed well at the start. It's a bit like the old FIDI and the token rings. They've got self-healing and a whole bunch of features in IB that way, way better than stupid Ethernet and dumb IP by comparison. But guess where the market is? It's not making InfiniBand chipsets and it's not making InfiniBand NICs anymore. Everybody, then you know, volume is where the prices is. And so what DriveNets is, is tacked into this, and their approach is to basically use cells. So instead of transmitting Ethernet frames across the backbone, you receive the Ethernet frames from the server, cut them up into cells, and now any jitter 
as you move across the network because of overloaded, you know, because of in-cast or because of multicast is now obviated because the cells have a fixed length. And so as you come in, you sit in the buffers of the switch fabric and you have a known time. And so you can never oversubscribe to fabric. You can move to something that's approximating a synchronous type of an architecture. Mm-hmm. And this is really important because um, in AI training and model generating, you're using massively parallel processing to hand tasks into GPUs. And then we've reached the limits of what's inside the server. Yeah? So, for example, if you look at a NVIDIA A100 chassis, they fit eight massive GPUs inside the server. The whole of the inside of the server is GPUs plugged into a motherboard mm. and not for display, just for processing, right? Mm-hmm, a special mm-hmm. type of GPU sort of optimized for training models and stuff like that. And so if you can put a, a small-scale AI, you need a dozen servers in a row. I think they sell them in um, they sell them in clusters of five. So you buy a rack uh, set of five racks. And so you can build InfiniBand out to that sort of model. And they only, because these things are so power hungry, you're only putting like four or five of them in each rack. But we're now at the point where AI needs to scale up. There are entire uh, second tier cloud providers buying AI hardware so that they can do AI, uh, you know, offer AI services via the NVIDIA software stack to their clusters. And, and NVIDIA, I don't know if you followed the the financial news this week, but NVIDIA re- reset their sales projections for the next quarter upwards by 35%. So this means their sales went from something like, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like the final number was 1.3 billion and it was up from a billion or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the market went bonkers. They actually made $200 billion in the space of 30 minutes because the share price shot up. Well, some (laughs) don't, don't quote me on the numbers, go and look it up, but it was just this bonkers amount. Right. So NVIDIA's, you know, got this position, but InfiniBand for Internex is not going to scale much beyond, you know, 100, 200, types of clusters. You can make it happen, but you have to do a lot of work to be able to do it. And so um, now it's true that InfiniBand has some specific features for direct memory transfers. So you can actually transfer from a memory location on this server to a memory location on that server. And InfiniBand has a specific set of software features to say, I'm not going to transmit and pass it down to the operating system, down to the NIC down over the network, back up the neck, reassemble it, hand it back up, which is very processor intensive uh-huh. and very latent, very slow. So InfiniBand reduces that. You can actually use the software mode. So I reckon we're going to see a lot more of this uh, AI Ethernet or AI data center networks. So what uh, DriveNets has done here is beat most of people to the market. They've actually produced a cellular style of technology across the backbone using Jericho 3s, I think, in the announcement. Is that right? Uh, yes, Jericho 3s. Uh, and mm. also the Ramon chipset. Yep. Right. So they're using a, a specific set of white box equipment here to run their software on using a cellular backbone to give you a much uh, jitter-free Ethernet network. And this is roughly equivalent to um, what Google is doing with the Tequila protocol. So I put a link to that in the show notes where you can go and see what Google there. Google published a little white paper, a unified low latency fabric for data center networks. And um, I mean... All power to drive nets for getting something out of the out of the box here really quickly and getting in the comp- competition long before Arista, Juniper, Cisco have have even talked about this. They've got a solution that's shipping. So well, I will say I've seen a Tech Field Day presentation from Arista talking about their ability to support uh, 
AI workloads on an Ethernet uh, fabric uh, using protocols like RDMA and Rocky. So I, I'll see if I can find that link and drop it in the show notes. So Arista is also uh, making efforts here. But yes, kudos to DriveNets for, I mean, obviously targeting hyperscalers at the outset because they're the ones building these networks to, to process their own workloads and workloads for customers. So. Rocky Rocky's one of those, you know, if your only tool's a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. <laughs> Rocky has pretty much failed for everybody who's used it. Mm. And at the end of the day, the challenge is, is that if you can only build a network out of Rocky and have no other traffic, uh-huh. then in theory you can make that work. But it, Rocky doesn't do it quite so well, as, and it's very difficult to sustain and requires you to do a whole bunch of things. Um, RDMA over Ethernet is the software that you use to write from memory location to memory location, mm-hmm. remote direct memory access, yep. RDMA. Yep. And, but that doesn't um, remove the jitter. It doesn't remove the latency that happens. It doesn't stop the buffers from pooping themselves and dropping frames or dropping packets, right? Well, of course, uh, argue would, Arista would argue that it has the deep buffers to prevent those kinds of, of jitter issues. But yeah, I'll let you argue with Arista. About uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole deep buffer thing is overblown. Uh, there is some value there, but that's a bit like saying when you go to the petrol station, you buy the 95 octane, not the 92. <laughs> um, right. Ultimately, you know, I, I do think that I think this is incredibly clever of drive nets. I can see there's some plenty of room here for a better solution to come out uh, because they're not requiring any special Ethernet NICs here. Right. So you can just go in. Um, and a lot of AI fabrics, a lot, a lot of AI data center fabrics are actually going to be pots of gold or patches of gold or a gold mine inside the brownfield. You're not going to, um, you know, wipe out your entire data center network and then put this in to replace it. You're just going to put in a bunch of switches and a bunch of AI servers, and they're going to be over there. And, you know, there'll be a cable going over to the AI sort of thing. (laughs) And this network won't be used for anything else because Mm -hmm. you just want to maximize the performance of this. So it's a pot of gold in the middle of a brownfield. Right. So there is definitely room here for direct drive nets to get traction with customers who want an AI, you know, or a highest performing Ethernet network. It's sort of like very different from HFT. You know, we talked a lot about low latency trading or high frequency trading networks that absolutely want the lowest latency. Uh-huh. It's it's but it's very different to that. AI actually has to send traffic. Those high HFT networks are very low volume. All they want is fast right. transmission or fast right. propagation. These networks need to be running at 100% throughput, at consistent jitter. Even better, it should be the fastest possible network that you can build, and that's where InfiniBand falls down. I think, to my uncertain knowledge, because I wasn't able to, to get a, a 100% confirmation, is that InfiniBand caps out at about 200 gigabits per second, hmm. and Ethernet is already at 800, and they're already talking about 1.6 terabit Ethernet in the next two or three years. So, which one are you going to, you know, which one are you going to do? Yeah, don't bet against Ethernet. That's, no. that's the rule. It may be cheap and nasty, but it's all, you know, <laughs> right. that's why everybody's buying it. Cheap and nasty. Cheap and nasty. All right. Uh, moving on. Uh, Meta, formerly known as Facebook, has been slapped with a $1.3 billion fine by a privacy regulator in the European Union. The company has also been given a five-month window in which it must stop sending data from EU citizens to Facebook facilities in the United States. Uh, Meta is appealing the ruling. A Reuters story says Meta is anticipating that a new pact between governments in the EU and the U.S. will allow international transfer of data. Uh, and that pact could be released as early as July. But EU courts have thrown out the first two attempts due to concerns over U.S. surveillance. That is the sound of political lobbyists warming their hands together with money <laughs> lubricated by cash. Um, you can really imagine that Meta is big into moving the political play in the in Washington right about now. 
And whether they can actually get the government's attention with all the other things that are going on um, is a bit of a hard to imagine that that a meta is going to get a good airing in Washington while Washington is distracted by all the other geopolitical issues that are going on around us. I mean, honestly, and I actually they, think the hurdle for Meta here is the EU, not the US. Uh, that's the Well, the, the point here is that Washington could lean on the EU and say, we need to support, you know, we need you to do something here. We need it. We want to support our business. Um, but I don't think the US has the capacity. I don't think the government is all that, um, is going to be very sympathetic to Meta. The EU is not going to be sympathetic to Meta. I mean, it doesn't even pay any taxes here. Right. So, <laughs> Why would the EU, you know, feel that Meta gets a vote? Right. Um, you know, if EU, if if Meta starts pay, ponying up, you know, twenty billion dollars in taxes a year that it would normally pay mm -hmm. instead of paying it into the US, then well, you know, maybe you know, they, they might maybe get a, they might get a more sympathetic hearing. Yes. Well, you know, maybe there'd be a few more politicians saying, you know, well, maybe we should listen to Meta. Maybe you know, there yep. is some money in it for us. Yep, yep. But if there's not, I think you know, this idea that of aggressive tax evasion might be coming back. But I also think Meta's got. A political uh, 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 an appeal problem. It's it's not very popular with voters, and politicians can make mileage out of bashing Meta. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Meta is going to turn that around because the company is so objectionable. Um, but it is nominally, uh, as we are finding, at least they are doing something about all the things that politicians care about. Um, so it'll be hard to see. And there's a whole lot of um, backroom stuff going on here. Like the Irish privacy regulator is the one that regulates Meta in uh, Europe. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of skullduggery going on. So the fact that this actually made it is actually quite surprising to a lot of people because uh, the, the Irish regulator seems to have been seriously compromised by Meta's money and its and various appointees which have been known to be extremely friendly to Facebook because Ireland does make money out of Facebook. Mm. And so for this to go on suggests that Ireland is actually being, being brought into check here. And... So Meta can appeal, but it doesn't look good at this particular point in time. That doesn't mean it can't change. It just means at this point in time, they can appeal and see how it runs out. Yep. And we'll follow up when we find out more. <clears throat> Moving on, uh, Extreme Networks has announced Extreme Cloud Edge. This is a new model that lets you manage Extreme APs, switches, and SD-WAN via the cloud or via on-prem equipment that will, Extreme will set up and manage for you. Uh, either option looks the same and works the same. It's based on the Extreme Cloud IQ management service. So, for example, if you have a business with offices in the U.S. and Europe, you can run your U.S. gear from the cloud, but you might want to use the on-prem option in Europe for data privacy or data sovereignty issues. All right, better late than never. I didn't really see anything that interested me here, Drew. This sort of capability to manage on-prem networks uh, from the public cloud or off-prem from a SaaS problem is something that we were talking about years ago. Like Cisco's got a couple of products in this space. Obviously, people like Meraki and Arista's got their cloud vision and all that sort of stuff. So, okay, unless I'm missing something, um, you know, extreme sort of catch up. I, I think the thing that... To me, sets it apart is that Extreme is actually going to, if you set up one of these, essentially what is a private cloud, Extreme sends you the hardware, they set up the hardware, they manage the software. If you need to uh, you know, replace a server, they do it for you. If you need to extend, update your cluster, they do it for you. So it is kind of like getting a mini public cloud running uh, on your premises managed by Extreme. I think that's the difference as mm -hmm. opposed to, yeah, we'll let you run our software on your hardware, but it's up to you to take care of it. Uh, extreme trying to make yeah. this as cloudy as possible, even with equipment that's on, on someone's premises. Sure. And that's what shareholders want. They want the consistency of the revenue and they don't want to see customers moving to the public cloud. So yeah, it's about time. I mean, Aruba's there. 
Cisco isn't quite there, but that's to be expected because there's more money for them on-prem than to go off-prem. But they're certainly moving into the cloud. Meraki, of course, is it, but also a lot of their data center and land camp stuff is now hosted in the cloud. Arista's there, you know, Juniper's certainly there, you know. So yeah, okay. Yep. To be expected. Uh, Extremes <laughs> Extreme is initially targeting MSPs and VARs. Uh, the option will be available to them in July. It's going to be available to enterprise customers in December. Uh, and one other thing to note, uh, just so you know, the private option gets the exact same software app updates at the same time the cloud version does. So they're trying to keep it, you know, as as one on one aligned public cloud and private cloud as possible. Uh, well, that's good because the company's only got limited resources. It really can't afford to be producing right. multiple strands of product. It's just not that large. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. All right, a quick lecture about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. Your branches change, your SD-WAN should too. Join Palo Alto Networks to see how AI and ML are powering next-gen SD-WAN and SASE for the branch. As businesses focus on driving the next growth phase, branch transformation has become a key priority for IT leaders. Critical industries such as finance, retail, healthcare, and manufacturing rely on a network of branch offices to serve their customers well. The newly established trends of hybrid work, digital-first customers, and accelerated cloud adoption are forcing organizations to rethink their branch IT strategy. So you can join SDX Central and Palo Alto Networks for an exclusive online event to see how NextGen, SD-WAN, and SASE can help you modernize and secure your branches. Go to sdxcentral.com to get the link to this free event or see the show notes for Network Break episode 431. Uh, back to the news, the Chinese government has banned the use of memory chips from U.S. chipmaker Micron in key infrastructure products. Uh, in key infrastructure projects. That's according to a story in the BBC. Uh, the Chinese government says it has found security risks in the chips that could create risks to Chinese uh, critical information infrastructure, which is very similar to the language the U.S. <laughs> has used to block Chinese telco gear in U.S. telco companies. Yeah, what goes around comes around, don't you think? I think um, that's exactly what this is, yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was a few things about that. Uh, one is that um, uh, uh, the Chinese government decided <coughs> to ban Micron about a week ago, I think. And it's taken a little while. But what's notable is that the um, press release from the Cyberspace Administration of China said the review found that Micron's products have serious network security risks, which promotes significant security risks to China's critical information infrastructure supply chain. I find it a little bit hard to believe that DRAMs can actually create a network security risk, but okay. Um, there's several. I think there's several angles that you want to look at this as, and geopolitics is important. Because DRAMs are important to what we do. I think, first of all, China here is talking about silicon manufacturing that is specifically not in Taiwan. Um, because there's been a lot of actions by China over the last four weeks. It's been flying jets into Taiwanese airspace, been holding naval military exercises just outside the uh, international waters of Taiwan. Definitely very threatening. Uh, we've seen a lot of political movers where one part of the Chinese bureaucracy says one thing, while another says the opposite. For example, one group of Chinese politicians are demanding that the U.S. meet with the Chinese leadership to discuss when they're going to, you know, Taiwanese security and when, you know, what's the future of Taiwan, which is a, a Chinese uh, directorate. They, it belongs to them. And, of course, when the U.S. said defense secretary says, oh, I'm willing to have a meeting, and you set one up, they go, another part of the government actually refuses and says, why would we meet with you? You've got nothing pretty normal for big organizations, right? One hand doesn't know what the other one's doing. Um but I think Micron is somewhat unique in the sense that it manufactures most of its DRAM in the USA, and it is a USA memory maker as opposed to the other larger DM, DRAM makers who are in South Korea and Japan. Uh, and also note that the market for DRAM is somewhat depressed at the moment, and prices are falling due to an excessive demand. And that, you know, cutting off the USA only, but not the other ones, doesn't really impact um, 
China at a time when the market is falling, but specifically impacts a US company, which is somewhat weak at this point in time. So, and uh, that's a pretty bad thing. Yeah, my assumption is that these security risks are just a pretext. Uh, this is strictly a political move. Uh, I think it's foolish for the U.S. not to think that China wouldn't use all the tools at its disposal to push back against U.S. actions that are seeking to limit China's access to cutting edge tech mm. and trying to get Chinese made equipment out of U.S. networks. So this is just their response to it. Uh, it should be expected. Uh, the U.S. Mm. Commerce Secretary said the ban is, quote, without any basis, in fact, and we see it as a plain and simple economic coercion and we won't tolerate it, nor do we think it will be successful. I don't know that they have a choice but to tolerate it. Maybe there's things go to the World Trade Organization and lodge some complaint or something, but this is where we are. Yeah. That's where we are. And I mean, the excuse that they offer is exactly goes back to the unproven claims from Bloomberg. Do you remember that uh, Super Micro? Oh, This chip is a piece of rice on the Super Micro motherboard. Yes. Claiming it as a super hack. A a hacking chip, Um, yes. Uh Yeah, that was never proven. No evidence was ever supplied. Nobody who's serious about it ever works out. And so... It's uh, still very strange to me that, you know, even years after that article was released and got traction, that uh, it's still going on. But this is the sort of damage those false articles create. Well, I think this is different from that because this is a government saying we detected this security risk. And again, I think that's just a pretext rather than uh, a news report. Absolutely. They should just say we don't want, we're just (laughs) going to, it's a trade war. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you're going to lock us out of your markets, we're going to lock you out of ours. And the idea that it's a security risk, you know, both sides are indulging in some rather childish behavior. This is our finger sticking in your eye for the finger that you have stuck in our eyes. Yeah, that would have been (laughs) exactly a much clearer press release. Anyway, uh, moving on, Cisco has launched a new training platform called Cisco U, which the company says is targeted at teams and individual learners, and it offers guidance and personalization on your learning journey. The offering is based around learning paths, which Cisco calls modular bite-sized learnings, plus hands-on labs to target immediate needs and develop long-term skills. Uh, the completion of learning paths gives you continuing education credits to maintain your certifications. Uh, to me, it looks like a mix of free and paid content, including blogs, tutorials, instructional videos, and labs. Yeah. I'll get to what I don't like about it in a middle, in a minute, because there's a lot to not like. Um, I just wanted to reiterate that most companies would prefer to fire you than train you. And yes, it's ridiculous. Yes, it's short-sighted, but, and it's costly in time and damage to the projects that they run. And it's very expensive for the company in the long run, but it's the way companies are set up. Their budgets to handle headcount are all localized in a single team. And if people say, you know, we need to do, uh uh-uh, then you get the chop. And they would rather, I read again another article this week um, highlighting that perhaps up to 30 to 40% of job advertisements in the market today are actually just so that they can tell the staff, oh, we're struggling to find somebody. So, you know, um, the idea that companies are going to buy training for you like this runs a little thin, but um, I did have a look at this and looked at various bits of the product. And a lot of this is just, content marketing. So this is, they took a lot of, some of Cisco's content marketing is they get a very well-prepared video to demonstrate the product, like what is new in ISE 3.3 or realizing business value for Nexus Cloud. Not exactly learning as such, that's marketing. So I wouldn't want to see too much of that in there if I was paying the sort of money that they're asking. I do note that Cisco products tend to be complex and hard to understand at a business level, particularly very hard to sell Cisco's business value because the products are often very convoluted. And so we often see them thinking that sales is a learning or an educational problem. If only customers understood our product better, if only our customers understood us better, they'd buy more of it without sort of thinking that it's a product problem. It's not exactly a good fit for customers or it's too complex or too something. So 
um, I sort of struggle with this idea that, you know, I need to train on Cisco products. I, I think we're moving away from that to some extent. Uh, when I did a bit of a demo on the site, I was moving around, clicking on pages. I don't know if you had time to look at it, Drew. I did not. I found that even at 10, it was downloading up to 10 megabits per second just for a blank web page, just a standard web page, and taking up to 60 seconds to load on the open subscription page. And just not, you know, it looks like it's unfinished. It's not a surprise. Um, Cisco quite often releases these products unfinished, incomplete, and sort of waits to see if people use them before they go on to finish them and put the rest of the investment in. So I'd say the site may be just half complete, given uh-huh. on what I did around it. I did spend a couple of hours sort of poking at it. Um, and I just, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit indulgent here. I'm not a fan of the Cisco aesthetic that they've got at the moment. They've got all this white space everywhere uh-huh. and they've got these really expanded fonts. And so you spend your whole time scrolling around this thing, trying to find, you know, and the form entries are like a centimeter and a half tall on a screen. And, uh-huh. I just couldn't build an effective mental model of the site because I couldn't see the whole thing on the page, if you like. Uh-huh. And um, but um, you know, Cisco uses that same look and feel everywhere. It uses the same web templates right the way across all of its products and a lot of its websites. So this product is this new product is now templated. But I found it very off-putting in this format because I couldn't see the pathways to learning. And then the final thing that I'm struggling with here is the pricing. I really. Did you see the pricing? I did not see pricing. Okay, so there's two levels. There's one called Essentials, which is discounted from eighteen hundred US dollars to fifteen hundred US dollars per year, mm-hmm. and the all access and the Essentials looks pretty much useless for anything serious. Um, but the Cisco U all access, which is probably what most people would be expecting to get, is forty eight hundred dollars on an introductory discount or six thousand US dollars a year. Wow. So that is not. That's $500 a month, right? That is a lot of money. Substantial. So my guess here is that Cisco is not expecting you personally to buy this, and nor would I recommend it to you on that sort of pricing level. It needs to be under $1,000 to be approachable. Um, But my guess is that Cisco expects to sell this via the resellers or in deals to customers. So if you're doing a deal with Cisco, this product can be discounted by 60, 70, 80%, depending mm-hmm. on your corporate discount. Your, mm-hmm. your company can negotiate a discount from Cisco. You might be able to get this at 80% off if you're a really big customer and you've got good negotiating power and so forth. And if that's the case, then this pricing becomes much more reasonable. I mean, that is the reason that Cisco power cables are so expensive is that if they apply a customer discount of 70%, they still have to make a profit, right? Yep. Well, in case of power cables, it's a bit more complicated because there's a handling fee in there. Um, but as somebody also pointed out, it, you're going to take your Cisco learning credits. So if you are a VAR and you want to give your staff access to this material, you'll get a certain amount of learning credits as part of your partnership and you can allocate them to people so that they can uh-huh. log in and start doing the training. So uh-huh. the pricing is not necessary. It feels to me that Cisco saying that Cisco U is expecting this to be sold as part of a deal to someone else. And they can do an internal chargeback and make an oversized amount of revenue on it, rather than expecting customers to sign up for it as individuals in their own right. So if you're outside of the Cisco ecosystem, you're not Navar, you're not working for a big customer, you're probably not going to use this product would be my reading of the pricing and the sort of model of what they've got in there, because a lot of the content in there just isn't that great. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, one, companies have done a great job of uh 
letting their tech employees know that, you know, certifications, extra training, that's sort of on them, uh, on their dime, on their own time. Uh, so if Cisco's expecting companies to, to foot this bill, it seems uh, maybe not a great strategy. Uh, on the other hand, you know, Cisco certifications and training, I think, are a significant advantage for Cisco and one of the ways it continues to maintain uh, its market share dominance. So anything they can do to expand training instruction, keep people mm -hmm. on the Cisco track, helps keep Cisco basically in companies uh, IT shops. So uh, it seems like, the, you know, anything they can do to land and expand that would make sense. The pricing does seem really aggressive. So I'm not sure what the strategy mm. is there, but maybe you're right. It's going to be thrown in as a, you know, buy a bunch of switches and we'll throw in a, a, a Cisco yep. U subscription. Well, the flip side here is that if you're going to um, send someone on a week long training course, right, at an offsite provider, you are looking at, you know, two or three grand for the course plus another thousand to two thousand for the. So maybe that's the pricing benchmark. Do you think that's, you know, is that reasonable? Or do you think online training should be priced at the same as two weeks of on-site training? Or is it, you know, right. is that, right, is that right. the benchmark? I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Anyway, links in the show notes. If you want to check it out, we will wrap up with some space networking. Uh, the startup Astronus has successfully launched and deployed a geostationary satellite that's going to provide internet access to a service provider in Alaska. The startup plans to target remote locations with limited or no internet connectivity uh, because the satellites stay in geosynchronous orbit over the location. You don't have to launch thousands of satellites to provide continuous connectivity, uh, although latency can be an issue. All right. So obviously a lot of money in space networking. So private equity and VCs are spending big to try and grab a hold of a winning opportunity here. Um, and certainly from a market point of view, we need more competitors in space networking to make sure that Starlink doesn't control the network. We know that any technology company that gets a dominant position like Amazon or Facebook um, generally is bad for the world around us at general. So um, that's the that's the that's the need that's going on here. Companies are asking for alternatives, and it's a viable pitch to, to my mind. Now, Starlink technology relies on launching hundreds or even thousands of mini satellites per year yep. into a mesh architecture, and so it costs a lot in a build to build that and to maintain it. Like to make the satellites and then ship them to orbit is just this cost after cost after cost, and it only works if you can get the cost of it down. And that's why uh, the Starship program is so important to Starlink because that reduces the cost per satellite quite significantly. Now, that said, satellites only last so long before they run out of fuel, and this is one of the, the issues of the first-generation Starlink satellites is that they're all falling out of the sky because they've run out of fuel. Because they're in very low orbits, not low, not low Earth orbit, or they're in really sub, really, really short orbits, and so they have to be constantly using fuel to check altitude and to check their placement uh, because they're, you know, always moving around in that atmosphere out there. And so they do just fall out of the sky on a regular basis and have to be replaced. Geostationary satellites are much further from the Earth and they have long latency because they're that much further away, but they don't need repeated course adjustments like Starlink. So there are definite gaps in the Starlink coverage and Starlink is expensive. It uses a lot of power because you can't just point the dish at the satellite and then leave it there. You have to track the satellites and adjust them as they go overhead. Uh -huh. It's a very weak antenna, so it doesn't get a strong signal. So you have to power it up a lot to, you know, blah, 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 all the things, right? So there's definitely a gap in the market to continue to use geostationaries, but the days of shipping a 20-ton satellite to a geostationary orbit, I think we're getting down to sort of like a, not a micro satellite, but this is like a mini satellite that can go up and sit in place for an extended period and possibly have a different price point. Yeah, Ars Technica said this was about the size of a washing machine to give you a sense of the, the size. Yeah. 
Where in the old days, they in the old days they were more like a small van. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah so that's, truck, yeah. that's an improvement. I, I feel like this is not a competitor to Starlink because uh, obviously latency is going to be key, and they're not trying to launch thousands of satellites to give you global coverage. They are a niche that it's targeting remote locations, not a lot of coverage. So I think they'll probably be looking at like you know oil and gas drilling uh, where you don't have coverage, uh, remote locations like uh, Alaska, or maybe there's probably lots of military use cases, you know, forward operating bases and so on here. So we'll see how this plays I think plays Starlink out. is better suited for the military because of its distributed nature, whereas the geostationary, you can actually just, it's there. So you can send a satellite killer and take it out, or you can target it with electronic warfare and stuff like that. Whereas Starlink, the satellites move all the time, so it's very difficult. So I think this might be a market more for... Um, you know, the specific niches where cost is an issue. Because remember, right. Starlink is getting more and more expensive. They've been re-announced business pricing and very big caps on the bandwidth. So you can only, I think it's a terabit now. Uh-huh. Once you use a terabyte, you're done. The, the connection shuts down. Mm. And if you're a business customer who uses much higher all the time, not just a, you know, ordinary surfer, you know, just a, a retail customer, the pricing's really, really starting to jack up. Um, if, you, if you need it, you need it, but you're going to pay for it. And until we get some competition, I think, it's going to continue. All right, well, the link's in the show notes if you want to read about Ars Technica. I had a good write-up, uh, so go check it out. That does wrap up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet. We're going to be talking about assembling a sassy architecture. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're going to pull back the covers on SASE or Secure Access Service Edge. Uh, Fortinet is our sponsor. So SASE is an agglomeration of multiple technologies, including SD-WAN and cloud-delivered security services. I'm talking about applicationware firewalls, IPS, Secure Web Gateway, and more. Uh, some SASE offerings also incorporate zero-trust network access. And one important concept to grasp around SASE is that it's as much an architecture as it is a product. It requires planning and foresight to put the pieces together and operate them. So we're going to talk with Fortinet about all the elements of its SASE offering and what a typical customer engagement with SASE looks like. Our guest is Nirav Shah. He's VP of Products at Fortinet. Nirav, welcome back to the podcast, and let's get some context. Very briefly, what are the essential components uh, of a SASE offering from Fortinet's perspective? Yes, so look, SASE is a framework, um, and as part of that framework, it's all about bringing the on-prem and remote workers together. So the key components are uh, secure SD-WAN, which is an on-prem, as well as the cloud-delivered security, which often includes secure web gateway, the ZTNA, CASB. One important f- uh, I- uh, item here required is to need for a unified agent so you can connect and bring all of these capabilities together and have a simplified management. Okay, so those are the major elements. Why should customers care about SASE? What kind of value am I getting that I'm not getting from the way I've typically done things with, you know, firewalls at the branch or more recently SD-WAN, which often incorporates security capabilities right in the SD-WAN gateway? Why do I need to put together this whole architecture? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at today's environment, the hybrid workforce is going to stay here for a long time. Also, applications are not just in data center. Applications are distributed in SaaS and multi-cloud. So when users are on the road, you cannot ask them to go to office and then connect to SaaS applications or other applications. It's about giving them flexibility, giving them security on the road with better user experience so that the security and user experience remain seamless. Right? And that's the key focus on defining the SASE framework. So what a lot of our customers are doing is they have this great secure SD-WAN deployment done, but when users are now remote or when they're coming back on and off, the 40 SASE brings that connectivity back to their environment. So as I said, 40 SASE is a product, brings that SASE component connecting back 
to this branch firewall connectivity to have a secure internet, private, and a SaaS access. I do want to say, Drew, and uh, the one key part of this whole discussion is it doesn't matter where customers are deploying our SASE or SD-WAN. We are running the same 4DOS software, which as you know, we have been building for last 20 plus years. It is using the same 4DGAR Labs-based security, which has gained, we have talked extensively about how we use AI and ML to bring 200 million plus threats uh, related information back to our platform. So the good thing is it's a flexibility, right? bringing all this thing together to simplify their operations. Yeah, I think that's actually an important point because when I'm thinking about cloud-delivered security and I'm looking at my options, I kind of worry about, you know, all the processing that has to happen. I want to make sure that when my traffic is going through uh, a Layer 7 firewall, IPS, Secure Web Gateway, and so on, that this has been carefully integrated so that, uh, you know, you're not introducing latency as it goes through and that could happen if I'm, you know, pulling together some open source IPS from here and something else from there and trying to glom it all together. You're saying it's the same 40 OS that I would get if I was buying a hardware firewall. Exactly, right? And that's that's the great part of it. Not only it's the same 40 OS, but this entire architecture is hosted and delivered by Fortinet, right? We are building the cloud scalable network. So now customers can just connect to our cloud. We will provide them that 40 OS and security. If we need to upgrade anything, we will take care of that. So you can see how customers can shift their focus uh, and, and let us do that as well as we will provide them a simple approach to go from a CapEx to an OpEx kind of a business model. Okay, so where then, we, we talked about SASE as a framework or an architecture. If I'm trying to get my arms around it, where do I start? Is, is, do I need to get my SD-WAN deployment locked down first? Do I start with cloud-driven security? How do, where do I start to do a SASE? Yeah, and this is something we discuss with many of our customers almost daily nowadays. What's happening is, if you see the history of Fortinet, we have thousands of customers who have deployed firewall and SD-WAN, right? So it's a journey approach. Four years ago, a lot of our customers using firewall just turned on SD-WAN because they have secure SD-WAN. We're going through the same part where customers using secure SD-WAN are now turning on our 40 SASE because the seamless integration is very easy for them to enable that. So now you can see customers with secure SD-WAN on-prem or in data center, utilizing our 40 SASE, which is cloud delivered, and coming this together, they allow their employees to get secure internet, private, and a SaaS access. It doesn't matter where they are, right? And still get a really good user experience and advanced security protection. Okay, so another question is uh, zero trust network access. And this is the idea that I want to have essentially a, I don't trust you until I have an opportunity to figure out who you are, where you're coming from, what device you're on and what applications you need before I give you access to anything. How does this fit into the overall SASE architecture? Is, do I have to add this on later once I've got my SD-WAN and my cloud-delivered security up? Is it something I can integrate as I roll these things out? Yeah, so... So the good thing is, uh, again, the, the whole ZTNA and that application gateway is part of our 40 OS. So as we talked about the journey approach, if customers have secure SD-WAN on-prem, they can turn on the ZTNA application gateway there, or they can do it in multi-cloud, or they can do it in SASE cloud-delivered network that we have built. Why this is important is it's all about the flexibility, right? This, as you said, the ZTNA allows an application access, and it is important that 
that our customers and their employees are getting access closest to the application. So the fact that the flexibility is built in, a lot of customers, depending on the application, they turn on ZTNA application gateway in SASE or in our SD-WAN. And we believe Fortinet is one of the only vendors to do this. So I think the, imp- the interesting part about zero trust network access, and let's let's divorce this from zero trust more generally, because that's a slightly zero trust network access is a subset of zero trust, you know, the more global idea of that. But what you're effectively saying is if you've got Fortinet firewalls, you've got a zero trust network access tool there. You just got to turn it on is the first thing. And then the second thing is um, that it really shouldn't matter what kind of network you're on, whether it's a, a branch or a coffee shop or, you know, you're working, uh, you know, from some weird location on a, a 4G router sort of thing. It should just all be the same. It doesn't require different methods depending on where you're coming from. Exactly, right? It needs to be universally available because you have to mm. make sure you're using the ZTNA control where applications are. And that was the decision we made. It's the same thing, Greg. If you remember a few years ago, we talked about mm. SD-WAN. Just turn it on. No license. Same way. The entire ZTNA yeah. application gateway is built in. Just turn it on when you need it. And we will do identity, device posture, and all of those checks to provide that universal application access. And is there also right. some kind of integration I've got to do with my identity provider or my uh, Active Directory uh, to, to get this uh, the ZTNA aspect? Yes. So it is part of it. The, the ZTNA process, the number one step is identity check. So you have two options. One is, of course, Fortinet, uh, as we do, 40 Authenticator and 40 Token. We build those identity product. It integrates with that. But also at the same time, we integrate with many third-party identity providers as well. So yes, it's a key part to that. Okay. What about operational complexity? Because when I'm thinking about the entire SASE environment, it seems like there's almost an infinite number of decisions or policies that I have to make from which apps are taking which path of the branch to which user gets access to what apps under what context of device and location. And, you know, building all these policies at the outset seems like a nightmare, but then trying to manage and update them over time also seems like a problem. So what are you doing to help me actually be able to manage a, a SASE deployment? Yeah, so I think the the step number one is, this SASE framework needs to be extremely intuitive and simple for customers to deploy those policies at scale for users, right? Onboarding the users should be very easy. And that is the exact approach we are using where foreign 40 SASE, the cloud-based management, has all kinds of policies for all security and SD-WAN capabilities built in. But we are even taking step further, right? You know, Fortinet has 40 Manager, which is a centralized management that we built for last many years. Customers extensively use that to manage our firewall, SD-WAN, and many other technologies. We are also bringing the SASE management component as part of that. So now you can see as part of our, our promise to simplify operation, unified management is our big goal, big vision to make sure customers can deploy the policies at scale it doesn't matter where the branch firewalls are, where the users are, but we can now provide a consistent policy, consistent security, and it is simple to use. You know, I, I just don't care about the users, honestly, and how they work. What I care about is getting my security policy implemented, right? I need to know that whoever's connected to my network, their data, their network traffic is going through a control point so I can see it. And then I can perform some sort of threat inspection, threat detection, and then I can also do some logging on it. 
And that's what I'm expecting. You know, does Fortinet do all of that? I mean, sometimes we don't talk about this enough that you, there's cloud services where you send it in, all that data is collected. What's this user looking at? What are they surfing? Where are they going? How often did they access Azure today? You know, that sort of stuff. Absolutely. In, in fact, that's the big focus on our management, uh, which has the visibility part integrated, right? You can see various things depending on the use case. And you and the good thing is the SASE framework include all the capabilities we talked about, where if somebody is just going browsing internet, you can get visibility about what traffic, what internet traffic has been going, what are we inspecting based on firewall as a service. If somebody is accessing the private application, you can go deep into which applications are there, are they allowed to do it, or, and what's the level of granularity we are seeing. The third step is also about SaaS application, right? If somebody is going into the Office 365 and other SaaS applications, that it is more than just visibility, it is also about control. So giving that kind of visibility is also key. So Greg, mm -hmm. to your point, not only we provide all the threat inspection and visibility, but it again goes back to integrating with our 40 manager and 40 analyzer, which is the heart of our fabric mm -hmm. managing everything end to end. Mm -hmm. So you're saying I've got essentially, you know, one unified management to do, you know, the hardware to do the SD-WAN policies, to do the security policies, to do the cloud delivered security. Exactly. Yeah, that is something mm -hmm. what we recently just announced. And we believe this is how the SASE needs to be done. It shouldn't be mm -hmm. done in a silo way. It needs to be simple to give those promises talked about simplifying operations. And I think it's also the unified approach because if I buy a solution through Fortinet, I get my 40 solution. I have my 40 firewalls, my 40 WAN, I have my 40 campus, my 40 branch, my 40 wireless. I think one of the things that people are realizing, and certainly we're seeing a lot more messaging from all the vendors around this, is that day two operations is actually more important than features and functions and time to deployment. It's how easily can I operate this? Because this is a lot of gear. This is a lot of features. You're sending flows through the edge. You've got branches that are directly connected to the internet. You've got people moving from office to office to coffee shop to home. There's so much more going on here that actually the operational part is actually a bigger problem than all the rest of it, I think. You are so right. And that has been our mission to making sure that, I mean, of course, we want to provide cybersecurity wherever customers need, but it needs to be done in such a way that they can easily expand on it. The problem today is when vendors are talking about SASE, oftentimes it has been stitched together. The security is OEM. There is no good management. And the ask is to re-architect everything. I mean, we, mm. that's not the answer to implement the new technology, right? And that is why what exactly you described, Fortinet does many products, but as part of our SASE framework, we are bringing this together as part of 40 OS. It is a unified management. And also one thing that we didn't discuss, it's a unified agent. So 40 client as a unified agent, customers can do VPN, ZTNA, SASE, CASB, all of this in one agent, which can also act as an endpoint protection. Okay, so I guess that would be your argument for why I would want to go single vendor versus best of breed and maybe give up some of that competitive advantage I would have with you know, playing my vendors off against each other? Yeah, I think it's it's ultimately the customer's choice in terms of where their network currently is, right? So we do believe single vendor approach is going to be the long-term answer. Um, when you are going with dual vendor, 
the some of the operational complexity comes in the higher cost comes in so it's again it's it's the flexibility of where and how you want to deploy that but at fortinet we are even thinking one step further not only we want to provide that single vendor saas deployment but why just limit to st wan we have access point we have switches we have 5g gateway even connect those elements to our saas to make sure that existing investment is now expanding using the cloud deliver security to provide security wherever they need and simplify operation and provide better security okay so it sounds like uh, streamlining operations is the new uh, that's why you should go single vendor argument that is correct yes All right. Well, that does uh, wrap up our time. Uh, if folks are curious about uh, the whole Fortinet approach to SASE and SD WAN, uh, cloud delivered security, where can they go to get more info? Yeah, they can go to Fortinet. dot com slash SASE to learn more. Thank you. Awesome. That's Fortinet. dot com slash S A S E SASE. Uh, well, Nirav, thank you for joining us, and thanks to Fortinet for being a sponsor. Sponsors uh, help us do what we do here at Packet Pushers. Thanks to you also for listening. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog and our newsletter all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.